She was this gun-toting, whiskey-drinking broad. The super epic fucking broad. She was a pioneer in the industry. She's also so famous and so controversial. So controversial. So she's kind of a big fucking deal. Her story is so incredible. She belongs on this podcast because she's a broad you should know. Hello and welcome to Broads You Should Know, the podcast about amazing and noteworthy women from history. I'm your host, Sarah Gorski, and as promised, I am back today with an episode about Ruth Handler, the original creator of Barbie. If you haven't already listened to the Barbie movie review roundtable that we did last week, um, I highly recommend checking that out. Um... This is this specific episode is going to go much more into just Ruth herself, how she created Barbie, uh, and more about her life. Um, but for movie reviews, that's last week. Um, but today, let's just kick it off and jump right in here. Ruth Moskowitz was born into a family of Russian or potentially Polish, I found sources that said both, um, Jewish immigrants in Denver, Colorado in 1916. She was the youngest of 10 children. Both her parents were immigrants. Um, her father was a blacksmith and her um, mother, apparently they came over in the steerage section of a steamship, old school style for immigrants in this country, right? Um, and in 1916, when Ruth was about six months old, her mother needed surgery. And Ruth's big sister, Sarah, and her husband, um, because they had so many kids that some of them were grown at the time when, when Ruth was born, um, they took Ruth home while her mother was in surgery and kept her, um, basically raising her kind of as their only child. Uh, and all of Ruth's female relatives, they all were working hard to make ends meet, as most immigrant families do, right? Um, and Ruth herself worked as a soda jerk at Sarah's drugstore, and she was also a secretary for um, her brother, who was a lawyer. Uh, when Ruth was about 16, she met Elliot Handler, when, and they started dating. Uh, I don't know much about this in-between period. They dated, they didn't get married right away. Uh, Ruth ends up uh, getting a coup from her family in 1932, and she drives it to L.A., and she begins working as a stenographer at Paramount Pictures, and she was living in L.A. Um, in an apartment with a bunch of her female friends, which I think notably we can say that that probably contributed to Barbie's modern lifestyle, her dream house, all of that scenario, right? And Elliot ends up following Ruth to L.A. Um, and starts working in L.A. And one source that I found mentioned that at 24, Ruth is the one who proposed to Elliot. Uh, and that Ruth wore a borrowed dress to her wedding in 1938. Ironically, because Barbie had so many wedding dresses and Ruth's was borrowed. So Ruth was working as a secretary at Paramount Studios, and Elliot was studying industrial design at the Art Center School of Design in Los Angeles, which is now today, that's the Art Center College of Design in Pasadena. Um, and Elliot made some like simple housewares for their like for their own apartment. He was like putting together some furniture and stuff like that. Um, and Ruth was like, you know, this stuff is pretty good. We should try to expand and you should make more of this that we can sell. Um, and so they bought some workshop equipment from Sears um, and they launched a giftware business in their garage. And they were making things like bowls and mirrors and clocks all out of plastic. Um, that's Elliot had like 
gotten into plastics. So, and Ruth uh, would be the salesperson. She kind of like headed up all the marketing and sales. And so she would show the product line at local stores um, and sell it, you know, to, to put on the shelves there. And within a few years, their sales had reached over $2 million. That is, $2 million in that era was about $34 million today. So that is huge amount of sales. Um, and then in 1942, the handlers start a company, Mattel. Um, and they, the, Mattel, by the way, the name Mattel is a combination of Elliot's name um, and the last name of their other partner, Harold Matson. Um, so Matt-L, Matson and Elliot. Um, they originally were selling primarily picture frames, and then they began using leftover wood and plastic scraps from that to make dollhouse furniture on the side. And within a couple years, the company had turned profitable, and they started to focus exclusively on toys. And the Barbie was not their first toy, I should say. Um, their first toys were um, thing. They were a lot of musical instruments, like a plastic ukulele and uh, toy pianos and a music box. They also apparently made a burp gun, which sadly does not, in fact, burp. I had to look it up. Um, it's an automatic cap gun, like a toy gun. So boys, you know, can really feel like they're soldiers and hunters and all that stuff. Um, and if it's not clear already at this point in the episode, Ruth is like a huge marketing and sales genius behind all these things, right? Um, and she really pushes Mattel to begin advertising on a brand new medium, the television. It was the first time a toy had been sold on national television year-round. Um, and in fact, uh, one of the sources I was listening to uh, said that apparently, and this was all before Barbie, remember, they spent one year their whole marketing company's value worth of advertising on TV, and they bought out airtime on the Mickey Mouse Club. So that was like a super risky marketing get for them. Like that was a hard, like must have been a, a difficult decision, but it ended up paying off huge. And Mattel's sales are like skyrocketing and they're doing really great. And so now we're going to move into like the story of Barbie coming into the picture, right? Uh, and per the iconic opening scene of Barbie, the movie, before Barbie came along, girls at this time were mostly playing with baby dolls. They, they were more or less being conditioned to be mothers. And Ruth didn't really like that. She thought that there was more for girls. And in the, and she's watching her daughter. So she, her and Elliot have two kids together. Barbara and Ken um, are their two children's names. And she's watching her daughter Barbara play dress up with her paper dolls. And as she's watching Barbara play, she's like, you know, dolls can just be so much more than this. You know, dolls really can have the power to model, be like to be a model for young girls as to how they could grow up and imagining what they might grow up to be in the world, right? But baby dolls didn't do that for them, and baby dolls is all that was on the market. So Ruth pitches this idea of having like an adult-looking doll um, to Mattel, the executive. You know, she's one of the executives, but she, she pitches the idea to everybody else, and these guys are like, no way. A mother will not buy her daughter a doll that has breasts. So Ruth kind of like lets this idea simmer. Uh, it, it, it didn't catch fire. But then in 1956, the handlers were vacationing in Europe. 
And when they are in Switzerland, Ruth sees a doll in a store window. And it was this German doll called Build Lily. Uh, and she was based on a comic strip pinup. So very sexy and skinky kind of um, really marketed for it was a product for soldiers during World War II. It was like, um, I don't know, it's hard to tell like exactly the purpose. But you know, you give a guy a sexy doll and probably to beat off to or whatever, right? Um, and so Ruth sees this doll and she's like, no, wait a minute, here's an adult doll. Um, or at least like the adult figure of the doll, like the plastic and stuff like that. So she, she buys the doll and she's in Switzerland and she brings it back to the U.S. And she brings it to the Mattel designers. And she's like, look, other people are doing it. We can make this happen. And they begin developing Barbie. And three years later, in 1959, Barbie would debut at the Toy Fair in New York City. And her name was Barbie Teenage Fashion Model. Um, and she is that Barbie we see at the beginning of the Barbie movie that has the ponytail and the black and white striped bathing suit and the little feet and the open-toed shoes and the sunglasses. And it was on sale for $3.00. By the way, if you want to hear more details about how they developed the Barbie doll, there's this awesome podcast that I listen to called LA Made, and they have a series running right now called The Barbie Tapes. And one of the co-hosts is M.G. Lord. Um, and uh, M.G. Lord is this woman who researched and wrote a whole book on the creation of Barbie back in the 90s. And she has got boxes and boxes filled with tapes interviewing Ruth and Elliot and um, a bunch of the designers and executives at Mattel throughout the years. It's a really cool deep dive podcast. My pers personal favorite moments of the, the development of the dolls um, is that apparently when they first were working with their manufacturer in Japan, Japan kept sending the doll back and it always had nipples on it. And they really did not want nipples on the they knew they needed they knew they wanted breasts but they did not want nipples on on the doll and apparently they kept going back and forth and they kept sending dolls with nipples and then at Mattel they would like file them down and send them back <laughs> the, eventually the manufacturers figured it out and they finally um omitted the nipple from <laughs> the drawing or from the doll itself rather um which I thought was so funny also, apparently, my other favorite fact was that um, there was a big internal hubbub during the, the creation of Ken. Uh, Ken was created three years after Barbie, 1961, or two years. Uh, 1961 was when he was created. And there was a huge hubbub internally as to whether or not Ken should have genitalia. And all the women in the company were like, 100% yes, if Barbie has boobs, then Ken needs a bulge of some kind. And all the men at the company were like, so embarrassed to be even having the conversation. Um, they kept like blushing through all these conversations. And then they kept trying to shoot down the idea. And then, and then like when it became apparent that they really needed to have some kind of a bulge, they were like, okay, but maybe we can paint jockey shorts, you know, onto the crotch. And all of the women in the room were like, uh, hey, girls are just going to scratch the paint off. That's ridiculous. Um, and finally, they they conceded um, to a, a medium-sized bulge after <laughs> going through many different sizes. So anyway, if you are interested in the development of Barbie, check it out. L.A. made the Barbie tapes. Um, I think it's only like five episodes, and uh, it is super fascinating. They also go through all the Barbie line, all the old old Barbies that were made, and kind of the, the progression of the company. It was really interesting. 
Um, and yes, by the way, if you were wondering, Barbie was named after Ruth's daughter, Barbara. At first she was called Babs, and then Barbie became her name when Babs didn't play test very well. Um, and then Ken um, debuted in 1961, and they are na- uh, Ken was named after her son, her and Elliot's son. Um, in her autobiography, Ruth stated, quote, My whole philosophy of Barbie was that through the doll, a little girl could be anything she wanted to be. Barbie always represented the fact that a woman has choices, end quote. So Barbie debuts at the Toy Fair, but they didn't actually end up making huge sales at that first Toy Fair. However, as soon as Barbie hit the shelves of the people that did buy at the Toy Fair, in the words of Ruth, quote, the minute that the doll hit the counter, she walked right off. And, uh... They would end up selling more than 350,000 Barbies in that very first year. The company's sales skyrocketed. Barbie was a huge hit. By 1960, so this is like 10 years later, um, Mattel had grown so much that they were able to take the company public. Uh, it had um, a valuation of $10 million. For perspective, $10 million in, let's say, 1960 is the equivalent of 103 million today, which is a lot of money. And after they went public, sales continued to just go berserk. And in a few short years, they had annual sales exceeding 100 million. And today that would be $1 billion. Um, They were like the number one toy seller in America. I'm kind of glossing over moving quickly through the development of Mattel. If you listen to that LA made Barbie tapes podcast, they go, you know, much more in depth into the Barbie line and how it grew and how they added to it and all the different spinoffs and stuff like that. But I'm kind of skipping through so we can get to the good stuff about Ruth. But let's just remind everybody here listening that Ruth is at this point, she's the president and she is, uh, she's the president of Mattel and she is like the head of most of the decision making that's going on. There's lots of people at the company, um, but sh- it's really her vision that has been driving everything as well as some other key players that, that ended up coming in. Um, but in the early 1970s, Mattel had brought in some new corporate managers um, and they started diversifying Mattel uh, away from toys into some other areas. And Ruth was part of this decision-making at the beginning, and, and they had begun kind of like a massive corporate reorganization. But then Ruth is diagnosed with breast cancer, and she undergoes treatment, including a mastectomy, which meant, of course, that she had to take some time off away from the office. Um, and when she came back to work after her mastectomy, nobody mentioned the reason that she had been gone, but everyone kept looking at her with all these really sad and mournful faces. Ruth said, quote, I'd been opinionated and outspoken. I had strong leadership skills. I had been running a company making hundreds of millions of dollars a year. We had 15,000 employees. I had a big job, but suddenly I was supposed to whisper about what I'd been through. And um, the big restructuring of the company that she had begun continued in her absence, but it didn't really all go down in the way that she would have done it. Um, And the new corporate managers kind of mucked up her original vision for it. And Ruth said that after she returned to the office after her mastectomy and recovery, she said, quote, I was never able to get back in and grab hold of things as I should have. And this is where we get to the part of the story. Like in the movie, if you watch the movie, you know, she jokes about her trouble with the IRS. And 
those things are true. Um, there's a bunch of stuff that goes on with the company. Depending on which sources you look at, I feel like um, different sources tell the story really differently. I'm going to tell the way that I'm understanding it, um, which is based primarily through kind of the reflection of, of Ruth on things. Um, because she herself wrote, a, she had an autobiography, and then there was this book that M.G. Lord wrote in the 90s. But I think what, what it seems like happened is that um, the sales had for the company had had or not the sales had dropped but the the company lost money for the first quarter in you know decades since its founding and part of that was due to the fact that they had been expanding into all of these other areas and they had put a lot of money into this expansion and those the places they extended themselves weren't paying back in sales in the way that they had hoped so the company was at a loss and um it sounds like some people in in the marketing and sales department had said, that's okay, we'll just borrow numbers from the future sales and move things over and to make reports look better for our shareholders. Um, and I think it, what it seems like is some of this stuff happened either without Ruth's knowledge or like she just didn't fully kind of understand what was going on as it happened because she was kind of in this transitionary period where she had been dealing with her breast cancer leave of absence and all of this disorganization. And maybe some of this even happened when she was still out and she came back to it. But either way, it, it in 1974, it became clear that some of the revenues had been overstated to their shareholders. Um, and there was like an outside settlement and about misleading financial statements. And $3 million was paid out to shareholders um, and the handlers, Ruth and Elliot, had to give up two million Mattel shares. And then, um, that wasn't the end of it, but four years later, there is a, a indictment that goes down from a federal grand jury. Um, and the charges included conspiracy, mail fraud, and making false financial statements to the Securities and Exchange Commission. And like, there's, you can read the details of how all of this happens um, and all the counts and all the things that happened. But basically, Ruth ends up taking the fall kind of for all of the stuff that goes down. And she ends up paying. Uh, at first, she, she pleads not guilty and innocent because it, it seems that she really kind of didn't know what was going on and that people were advising her or ill-advising her, right? But eventually she just decides to take the fall and she leaves Mattel and she has to pay 57000 in reparations. Um, she had to serve five years probation uh, and did 500 hours of charity work with the Foundation for the People, um, which was a foundation that helped other people on probation re-enter the job market. Now, as Ruth's kind of reflecting on all these things in her autobiography after the fact, um, she wasn't the only one indicted. Also, the, the former, Mattel's former vice president, a former con controller, and um, a supervisor on the company's toy division were also included in the indictment. But the marketing, quote, the marketing guys who had done most of the dirty work were not indicted, according to Ruth. And Ruth said that after being indicted, quote, I wanted to die of shame. I had always prided myself on being fair and honest and always valued my business reputation. She also talked a bit in her reflection about it all that, you know, she was ordered to pay the seventy, uh, the fifty-seven thousand rather in reparations, uh, and all the community service that she did. 
But the other defendants in the case, who also pleaded no contest, the same as she did, were fined 5000 each and only 160 hours of community service. And Ruth really felt that the U.S. Attorney's Office went after her so aggressively because she was a woman. Uh, and Ruth wrote, quote, bring down a woman, a famous woman, an uppity woman who had the nerve to climb to the top. Just think of all the reputations that could be made by bringing her down. So in the Barbie movie, when they're referencing her tax trouble, her trouble with the IRS, that is the summary of the story as best I understand it. But Ruth, um, she had been a hard worker her whole life uh, since she was a girl, and she was not one to kind of like wallow in self-pity. She, you know, she, it definitely was really difficult for her to leave the company and to deal with all of these um, legal issues and the indictment stuff. But she didn't kind of dwell in that for long. And very quickly, just a year later after she leaves Mattel, she starts a new company with Elliot called Ruthton Corporation, and they were based in Inglewood. And I bet you couldn't even guess what their product was. It was prosthetic breasts. Ruth talks about how when she first had her mastectomy, she was looking for like a way to kind of get her clothes to look like, you know, to look restored, like she still had two boobs, right? Um, and her doctor told her that she should just stuff the empty side of her bra with a pair of rolled up stockings. Um, and it looked terrible. In the mirror, she looks at it and she's like, no way. And so she goes to like a Beverly Hills department store and she asks a sales lady for uh, an artificial breast. And she was taken to a dressing room with no explanation at all. And she was handed a surgical bra and a couple gloves. And she eventually figured out herself that she was supposed to be stuffing this bra with the gloves. And then eventually she finds someone who makes prosthetic breasts, but they sucked. Ruth said, quote, I looked at the shapeless glob that lay in the bottom of my brassiere and I thought, my God, the people in this business are men who don't have to wear these. And so all of this horrible experience trying to find a boob replacement uh, for the one that she lost, she just decides, you know what, I'm going to just make one myself. So Ruth creates the Nearly Me prosthetic breast, which was made of liquid silicone uh, enclosed in polyurethane with a rigid foam backing. Um, and she sold in lefts and rights according to bra size. And her goal was to make an artificial breast so real that, quote, a woman could wear a regular brassiere and blouse, stick her chest out, and be proud. And she leads a sales team of like eight middle-aged women, most of whom were breast cancer survivors, into department stores. And they fitted women and they trained the sales staff on how to fit women. Um, and she even fit former First Lady Betty Ford after her mastectomy. And the ever amazing salesperson, Ruth, like she would go into these talk shows and she would send handwritten invitations to breast cancer patients. Um, and she ha she had the sales tactic that she called her, quote, strip act. And she would take off her blouse to demonstrate that no one could even feel or see the difference between the real breast and the prosthetic breast. And there's apparently a picture in People magazine of her yanking over, uh, yanking open her blouse to show off her her prosthetic <laughs> Very effective sales tactics. By 1980, the sales of Nearly Me uh, had surpassed one million. And in 1991, Ruth sold the company to a division of Kimberly Clark. Ruth said, quote, I didn't make a lot of money in it, 
but it sure rebuilt my self-esteem, and I think I rebuilt the self-esteem of others, end quote. There's this other really great quote of Ruth's when she's talking about her life and her life um, in product development, and she was very fond, apparently, of saying, quote, I've lived my life from breast to breast. Ruth would end up dying in 2002, not that long ago, at the age of 85, um, after complications following colon surgery. And that is the story of Ruth Handler, inventor of Barbie. I don't know about you guys, but I found myself totally fascinated at all that she did in her life. And even though her and Elliot worked together their whole life, they were together their whole lives uh, all the way to the end. Um, And Elliot's name, you know, was part of Mattel, the name. Um, It's very clear in all the research that I did here that Ruth really was the driving force from the very beginning, not only of the ideas of what to make, but also how to market and sell them. And she is the reason that Mattel became so successful throughout the years and that her second business, Nearly Me, also followed the same footsteps. And while Ruth herself never really denied uh, her involvement with the scandal around Mattel, Uh, at the time of her departure from the company, it's really clear to me that she was not the only person involved in the decisions, possibly wasn't even there for them, and ended up having to take the fall for it just because she was a powerful woman in a world filled with men. And we see this story time and time again with so many of our broads on this podcast and throughout history. And to find out that Ruth suffered the same fate as the other sisters we've covered is always really disappointing. But what I find personally very uplifting in Ruth's story is that even though she had all these disappointments in the legacy that she was building, she didn't let them get her down and she just kept working and she just kept doing what she loved most, which was creating and selling. And I think it's easy to want to give up after you hit bumps in the road and and Ruth didn't. And... um, She was right all along. She was right about Barbie. She was right about what women want and need in their products. And she left behind a huge legacy for all of us to follow when it comes to not letting the world define and limit what it is girls can do in their lives. And instead, giving them the world and letting them imagine their own dreams. To learn more about Ruth Handler, see pictures of her and early Barbie, head on over to broadsyoushouldknow.com. While you're there, click on over to the About page and read more about me, my bio, picture, links to my cool stuff, all right there. Are you following Broads You Should Know on social yet? We are on Facebook and Instagram at Broads You Should Know and Twitter at BYSK Podcast. To suggest a broad, fill out the form on our website or email us at broadsyoushouldknow at gmail.com. Are you a fan of our podcast? If so, please help spread the word about us. Share an episode with your friends and family, and better yet, leave us a review on Apple Podcasts. That really helps new listeners to find us in the algorithm. Broads You Should Know is produced by me, Sarah Gorski, and edited by Chloe Skye, with original music by Darren Callahan. Finally, if you really enjoyed this episode about Ruth Handler, then I highly recommend you check out some of our previous episodes, especially our Barbie Roundtable last week reviewing the new film, and also check out some of our inventor broads. We've got Sarah Good, Hedy Lamar, Mary Beatrice Davison Kenner, Marianne Croak, and Melita Benz. See you next week for another Broad You Should Know. <laughs>